This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Today on Basic from Dirty Jobs, it's Mike Rowe. One day, late in 91, my mother called me. And she says, Michael, you know your grandfather just turned 90 and he's not going to be alive forever. I was just thinking, wouldn't it be great if before he died, he could turn on the television and see you doing something that looked like work? (laughs) You know, but I grew up on a little farm and I was very connected to where my food came from and where my energy came from. And my history, all that stuff, Hollywood will just piss all over that. And when I worked with a sewer inspector, when I was completely subsumed, and a chocolate tide of disappointment. Roaches the size of your thumbs, rats the size of loaves of bread, all of it captured on camera. I put all of that on the air. Nobody thought people were going to actually watch a talk show in a sewer. What did you think? Did you think this was the one? Did you think you were onto something or did it just seem like a good idea at the time? I was just trying to shut my mother up. <laughs> Hey, everyone, and welcome to Basic, the official podcast of the unofficial history of cable television. I'm Doug Herzog, a former TV executive, which means I've never done a dirty job in my life. Now, usually at this point in the show, I would introduce our esteemed co-host, Jen Chaney. She's a TV critic for Vulture and New York Magazine. But unfortunately, Jen is overwhelmed with an avalanche of Vulture deadlines this week and can't make it. I can't really argue with that. They pay her a lot more money than we do. So we'll soldier on with the help of our trusty producer, Christian Swain. Welcome, Christian. Well, thanks, Doug. Happy to help out. It's a dirty job, but someone's got to do it, right? Which brings me to our guest today, Mike Rowe, the host of one of Cable's most enduring shows. That's right. After many years, Discovery Network's Dirty Jobs is back, and we'll talk about that and some of the many, many other shows he's hosted. I can't wait to hear all about it, and when it's over, I will do my best subbing in for Jen to help Doug break it all down. But right now, it's Mike Rowe. Mike Rowe, welcome to Basic. We are very happy to have you here today. You know, we start the show off every time by asking our guests, do you remember when you first saw cable television? I think so. I was in Baltimore County living with my parents. I must have been 14 or so. And up until that point in my life, my main job in the house was to stand next to the TV, which was UHF, right? And grab the antenna, like the rabbit ears with one hand and hold like tin foil with the other as we desperately hoped to get a slightly better signal than the garbage we were getting. And then one day, all of a sudden, more possibilities, better signals, just like that. My job was to get up to turn the channel whenever instructed to, as opposed to standing next to the TV holding on the antenna. So, yeah, I remember that. Do you remember what you were watching on cable back in those days? I don't think I really started paying attention to cable as a thing until I started watching the Discovery Channel and started crossing paths weirdly with John Hendricks, of course, who who launched that whole thing. The great John Hendricks. You know, he really is. I mean, it's funny. You don't know it at the time. Years have to go by, and then you start to look back and ask yourself, 
who actually made this work? And it's a pretty short list of people, but John's definitely on it. So you have hosted and narrated, I mean, dozens and dozens and dozens of shows. So when was that moment in your life where you decided you wanted to be on camera and a personality and kind of out front? When did that manifest itself? You know, I mean, it's a very crooked road, but I guess for the first six or seven years when I thought entertainment would be the thing, I was living in Baltimore and I was singing in the Baltimore Opera, of all I things. I saw that. Let's talk about that. What were you doing singing in the opera? Was that something you were pursuing? No, actually. It was the advice of my grandfather, who built the house I was born in without a blueprint, and whose incredible handy gene turned out to be recessive. I worked as his apprentice as a kid, but I didn't get the natural gifts that he got. And one day, after completely bitching up a concrete pour, he said, look, you can be a tradesman, just get a different toolbox. So on his advice, I wound up going to community college. I wound up studying acting and writing and singing and all sorts of other things. And really Forrest gumped my way into the opera just to get my union card. In those days, if you weren't SAG, you couldn't get an agent. And if you didn't get an agent, you couldn't get an audition. In a market like Baltimore, things were so siloed and structured, I just couldn't get in. But the loophole, Doug, if you get your AGMA card, American Guild of Musical Artists, you can buy your SAG and after card. Got it. So for me, it was a shorter line. I learned the shortest aria I could. I crashed an audition for the opera. I got in with the intention of buying my SAG card. The music was better than I thought. The girls were everywhere. I was dressed <laughs> as a pirate and a Viking. I was 22. I stayed for seven years. So, Come on, Are you kidding me? You sang that, with the Baltimore Opera for seven years? Seven years. Wow. While I was there, I, I did a lot of other local theater and some regional theater and thought maybe that's what I wanted to do. And then one day I crashed another audition for the QVC Cable Shopping Channel. Wow. So QVC, I yeah. thought I read somewhere that they fired you three different three times. times. That's correct. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What, what was that all about? Well, it's really all about the fact that I never should have been hired. The audition process in those days, you'll appreciate this. This is like early 90s? This would have been 89, 1990. Late 80s, okay. Yeah. QVC had a heartbeat, but they didn't have a lot of legitimacy. You know, they didn't have, it's not like people were standing in line to get their products on there. They were going out and selling whatever it is they could source. And the bigger problem was, you know, if you hire a, somebody with a decent sales background, you don't necessarily wind up with somebody who knows what they're doing on TV. And if you hire a TV guy, you don't necessarily get a person who knows how to sell. And so after years of beating their head against the wall, they basically changed their whole audition structure. And for me anyway, they rolled a pencil across the table. And the guy said, pick up the pencil, talk about it until I tell you to stop. Make me want the pencil. and. If you could do that for eight minutes, you were given a three-month probationary contract and no training. You just went on the air every night from 3 to 6 a.m. or midnight to 3. And during that time, you either sank or you you swam. And wh why did they keep firing you? Well, there were instances, you know, there was an incident with a collectible nun doll <laughs> early on, which sang Climb Every Mountain if you wound her up. And the winder... 
after frantically searching for the winder live on air and, and realizing it's not in the small of her back where you would expect to find it. You can't squeeze her hand. It's not coming out of her neck. I, I can't figure out where this thing is. So they get off me. The DP cuts to another tight shot of this duplicate nun. And I got this thing upside down in my lap, right? Because I find this thing poking out of the small of her back, but it's actually the crack in her ass. So I got an upside down nun in my lap. I'm kind of sitting on her head and I pushed her habit down and I'm leaning over her, winding her up when the DP cuts back to me. He didn't check his line monitor, right? He was just looking at the preview. So I'm suddenly revealed in about a million homes, sitting on the head of a Benedictine nun about to sing Climb Every Mountain with my thumb in her ass. It was a bad look. <laughs> there was just no way out of it. And in my nervousness, I yanked my hand out of her nether regions and sniffed my fingers. I don't know why I would do that, but I did it. Because it's funny, maybe? It was funny and awkward and weird. And, you know, everybody in the studio was laughing. And I think people at home were laughing, but my boss was watching. And he, he wasn't. He, he actually fired me on my answering machine. You know, like when I got home, it was like, you have 44 new messages. Yeah. You know, all my buddies from back home had been watching this slow descent into chaos. But like the 44th message was my boss saying, hey, uh, caught your show this evening. It was a uh, religious experience. Why don't you come on in and pick up your paycheck? It's been fun. I just want to let you know you have now uh, you have now supplanted Greg Kinnear as early basic cable story number one. Greg, well, Greg, Kinnear, Greg Kinnear actually sold basic cable door to door, but this beats that. Well, that's some high cotton because Dan Gibson called me to audition for some goofy show on movie time, I think they called it. That's right. And Dan told me it basically came down to the flip of a coin. He really? said, Mike, it's you and this guy on the West Coast. And honestly, the guy on the West Coast has the advantage because he's right here. I was living <laughs> in New York. Right. I'm like, well, dude, I can get on a plane, but you know how it goes. Greg Kinnear wound up hosting Talk Soup. And I wound up hosting some game show for Dick Clark called No Relation. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode. Available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So, what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right, you'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Hey! 
it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Hey folks, Stefan Shirazi and Renee Richardson here from the Metallica Report. And we are proud members of the Pantheon Podcast family, where the best of music and podcasts unite. We've got something pretty cool for you. We're giving away an exclusive Metallica merch package worth over $250. That's a whole lot of scary guys, skulls, M72, and other sought-after Metallica swag. And we've made it easy for you to win. Follow and share the Metallica Report, and you're in the game. Go to pantheonpodcast.com slash Metallica, enter your email, and hit that button to be entered to win. And just like that, you're eligible for our monthly exclusive Metallica merch package. And guess what, rockers? You can enter every month. So just do it. And while we love our global brothers and sisters, the lawyers won't let us ship outside the U.S. Now, before we dive into your very esteemed television career, I just have to talk about your voice. Mm. You have narrated so many things. I have been doing this podcast for good part of a year. And, and one of the few compliments I would get every now and then is, you got a good voice for that, Doug. You sound, you sound good. But I'm so now intimidated talking to you here and listening to that booming voice. How did the narration thing happen? And was that ever a path like radio or? Well, not radio so much, but back when Pop said, get a better toolbox, it was very strange as a kid, Doug. I, I had a stutter, like a recurring really? stammer. And I was kind of shy about the whole thing, but my voice changed when I was like eight. And I always sounded a lot older than I was. So one of the first things that I did at Essex Community College on the advice of a uh, theater teacher was I put together a demo reel for voice. And he said, send it to Nat Geo. Got nothing to lose. I'm like, they're never going to hire me. I'm 22 years old. He goes, they don't know that. So I sent basically an audition reel to National Geographic and on it, I just made up narration, right? High above the vast reaches of the barren Serengeti, the lone wildebeest wanders from the herd as the condor looks on, bemused, right? It's just ridiculous stuff. Well, they bought it and I started narrating stuff. They, I hadn't met them. They were just sending me scripts. I didn't have an agent, but because I sounded older than I was, I got a lot of narration work really early on. Wow. And, um... Yeah, you play the cards you get. And what did you look at as your true big break in front of the camera? Well, I mean, I didn't know it at the time, but it was probably it was probably QVC because yeah. people saw you. People saw me, but more importantly, Doug, there was no I mean, there was some pressure, <laughs> but I didn't care because it wasn't a job that I wanted in the first place and I was essentially sent out 3 hours live every night, figure it out, Mike, figure it out. And so I did, and I didn't appreciate it at the time. But when I left there, finally, I had a toolbox put together, and I was really good at auditioning. I booked a lot, but I wasn't looking for hits. I was looking for ideas that were so poorly conceived and hopelessly doomed that no amount of luck or talent could save them. And I would attach myself to these turds, and I'd get paid, and then I'd take a couple weeks off. 
And look, you know, you're, you are a Hollywood guy. You know, if you go to Hollywood with that mindset, with the mindset of a tradesman, and you're willing to settle for singles, the occasional double, you can work as much as you want. And that's what I did for 12 years, freelancing. Thanks to QVC, thanks to a decent tool chest, I freelanced my ass off. And I'd still be doing that if it weren't for the miscalculation that turned into Dirty Jobs. Well, speaking of Dirty Jobs, arguably your best known show among many, by the way. And you started to tell us a little bit about the origin of Dirty Jobs. So tell us a little bit about how Dirty Jobs came to be one of cable's most enduring shows. Well, after 12 years of impersonating a host, I, I had become, modesty aside, very good at it. You know, I could hit the mark. I could say the line. I could create the illusion of competence and, and knowledge in short bursts, you know. So I, I wound up getting hired by CBS right after 9-11. And I came up here to San Francisco to host a show called Evening Magazine, which, of course, you'll remember, Evening launched a lot of careers. Yes, it did. Also known in certain markets as PM Magazine, right? Same thing. Matt Lauer, PM. Matt Providence. Lauer came right out of PM. That's right. Yes, yeah, yeah. so many. And so many writers and producers, too. It was a great incubator. Yeah. It's a good show. It's a great format. And it started here in San Francisco. In fact, Doug, if you look at the format of Evening, you can actually draw a pretty straight line, not just from those individual segments to successful shows, but to entire channels. Like the Green Grocer became the Food Network. Right. Those original financial advisor guys on evening, that became CNBC. Right. Right? Yeah. As this space opened up with cable and there was all this shelf space, I always tell people, The Daily Show, I basically wanted to do weekend update every night. Yeah. Right. And I could. I had like the space and the time and maybe not enough money, but we did. Well, I'd love to circle back to that in one sec, but sure. to answer this question... <laughs> I'm at Evening Magazine, and I'm hosting it from art museums and wineries and beautiful places. It's really a cushy gig. And one day, late in 91, my mother called me. I'm sitting there in my cubicle, having just come back from some grand opening, some fair, whatever it was. And she says, Michael, you know your grandfather just turned 90, and he's not going to be alive forever. And I was just thinking, wouldn't it be great if before he died, he could turn on the television and see you doing something that looked like work? <laughs> <laughs> that doesn't involve a figurine nun. That's right. No more nuns, no more opera. The dude who you idolized as a child, who told you to get a better toolbox, is now nearing the end of his life. And he's wondering what the hell happened to his grandson. I mean, for God's sakes, man. So I took my cameraman. Actually, I went to my boss and I said, hey, why does evening always have to come from, you know, a winery? Why does it always have to be hosted from a restaurant or something? He said, well, what do you want to do? I said, how about a construction site or a factory floor or a sewer? And he says, you want to host Evening Magazine from a sewer? And I said, why not? So he says, all right, good luck. Anyway, I take the cameraman into the sewer. And what happens down there is actually the basis for a book I wrote a couple years ago because... It changed everything I thought I knew about my career. It changed everything I thought I knew about myself. It reminded me of how profoundly disconnected I had become from all the stuff that I really, you know, but I grew up on a little farm and I was very connected to where my food came from and where my energy came from and my history, all that stuff. Hollywood will just piss all over that. You know, I slowly became disconnected from all of it. 
And when I worked with a sewer inspector in the sewers of San Francisco, when I was completely subsumed in a chocolate tide of disappointment, roaches the size of your thumbs, rats the size of loaves of bread, all of it captured on camera. I put all of that on the air two nights later on Evening Magazine. So these poor people in Marin, you know, they're sitting down to their meatloaf to enjoy another heart-tugging story of some three-legged dog. And their Chardonnay. And their Chardonnay, right. <laughs> Let's sit down and hear the story of the three-legged dog who overcame canine kidney failure, right? right. That, that's what Evening Magazine is. <laughs> right. Instead, the new guy, this smartass, is crawling through a river of crap, replacing bricks covered in other people's crap. What is this? So they fired me, but they let me take the tape. They didn't care for the idea. I called it Somebody's Got to Do It at the time. Right. And then I pitched it everywhere. I took it to every single outlet I could find. We're in the 90s now. This No, no. This was 2000. We're in the 2000s. Okay. So you're out there talking to cable networks, basically. I'm talking to cable. I'm talking to broadcast. I talked to PBS. Too gross for PBS, not gross enough for Fox. <laughs> Too funny for NBC, not funny enough for Comedy Central, right? <laughs> but for Discovery, it wasn't quite just right. In fact, they didn't want it either. But Billy Campbell was there. And Billy had seen me in Africa. He had seen me doing these expeditions. And he was right. like, you know, if we can do an overall deal with you, we'll order three episodes of Somebody's Got to Do It. We'll change the name to Dirty Jobs. And then we'll send you out as our discovery ombudsman to go on various adventures. And that's how it began. Nobody thought people were going to actually watch a talk show in a sewer. No one <laughs> thought Dirty Jobs was going to be the thing that pulled the whole train for eight years, along with Deadliest Catch and Mythbusters. What did you think? Did you think this was the one? Did you think you were onto something or did it just seem like a good idea at the time? I was just trying to shut my mother up. <laughs> I was just trying to put something on the air that my grandfather would recognize as work. But I'll tell you, I mean, honestly, Doug, what happened was the feedback, both to that first segment on evening and to the three pilots that I did with Discovery, never mind the ratings, which were very high, never mind the fact that Discovery was horrified because the show that their, <laughs> that their audience loved was not the show they wanted them to love. This was right. classic cognitive dissonance. This was right. off-brand, right? right? Never mind that. The thing that mattered to me were the letters I got from people. And it wasn't saying, I love your show. It wasn't saying, oh, goddamn, you're so charming and funny. It was, you think that's dirty? You should see what my dad does. Right. My uncle, my brother, my cousin, my sister, my mom, my dad, you know, wait till you see what they do. And that was the light bulb. That's when I thought, you know what? It's very, very early in reality TV, 2002. In fact, so early that the word reality still used to mean that which was real. I had John Murray on who talked about creating the real world. And I was like, John, what did we call it back then? Because reality yeah. TV wasn't a term. We referred to the real world for years as a docudrama. That's right. Yeah. We didn't know what to call it. Right. But I took it very literally. And so my pitch to Discovery was, look, if we're going to migrate from nonfiction, David Attenborough and the credible expert, the voice of authority, if you're going to let me bend that into something more authentic, and if we're going to call that thing reality, then I want to come at dirty jobs in a very particular way. No second takes, 
no pre-production, no casting per se. You know, we just wanted real people doing real work that would allow my cameras to come in and just let me shadow them for a day. It was a very, very radically simple show that I think introduced the whole notion of a behind-the-scenes camera that never stopped rolling. Right. The best ideas are always the most simple ones, I think, you know, that are executed really well with a great host like yourself and just, you know, attached to a great idea. And oftentimes, it's not a result of a very deliberate pitch. Right. You know, it's not a storyboard and it's not a focus group. It's, right. It's, it's instinct. It's a phone call from your mother. Yeah. <laughs> right? It, it's, it's the spontaneous will to walk into your boss's office and say, look, why does it have to be a winery? Why can't it be a sewer? So going to the discovery of it all, this show really sort of changed the water there in terms of how they looked at themselves and how they looked at programming. And because they were a little more informational, which this show is, obviously, to a certain degree, but very staid. There wasn't a ton of fun stuff. No. Right? No. They, they were careful. They were cautious. To their credit, they were credible. And they became a trusted source of information for people who weren't full-on nerds or geeks, but who were just curious. Hendrix had a great turn of phrase early on. You know, he said, look, whatever else I do, the top line mandate, the single-minded proposition is to satisfy curiosity. And early discovery was really, really good at that. But they had a stick up their ass and they just weren't as interested in my view, as they could have been with what's under the rock, what's in that deep, dirty hole. Right. I figured if I could convince them to let me be a guest instead of a host, a cipher and an avatar instead of a voice of authority, then we might have permission to do a reality show that truly lives up to its name. Right. Was there ever a job presented to you where you were like, I'm not doing that. I don't think I can do that. No, because that was the one thing I couldn't do. My job was to say, if it's legal and if it's really happening, then at least I'll consider it. Right. The only ones I passed on, in hindsight, were ones that offered zero opportunity or potential for humor. Got it. So body farm technician crime scene cleanup, right. right? These are great, dirty jobs, but you just... But nothing fun about that. You just can't make a joke about pulling a corpse out of the trunk of the Pinto that's been in the Achafalaya swamp for three months to say, okay, well, now we know what a corpse looks like that's been in the swamp. I mean, you can, but you're not gonna. <laughs> not on Discovery. <laughs> not Comedy on Discovery. Central, maybe. HBO, yeah. maybe. Yeah. I'm not sure in 2022, but, uh, yeah. but maybe... Why did the uh, original run on Discovery come to an end? What was the story behind that? There was a certain amount of, well, deal fatigue on one hand. I never stopped negotiating. Good to know. Well, look, I mean, it was a very, very unique situation, right? I mean, technically, I'm the host of the show, but hosts aren't required to do any of the things I did that made the show successful. Right. And so there was that. Right. But no, it was mostly about, I was tired. I was older than I'd ever been. And there was a new regime at Discovery, and there was a strong propensity, a strong bias to want to make everything bigger. XL, 
right? So dirtier than the season before and dirtier than the season before that. But I couldn't do it. We had already plumbed the depths of everything. I'd been a mile and a half in the air on a radio tower. I can't go any higher. I've been a mile below the surface in a bituminous coal mine, right? I can't, I, I can't get any lower. I can't get any dirtier. Right. Um, and, I, and I don't want to go into the septic tank with John Stamos for a very special, <laughs> right? I just, so I didn't want to do the Hollywood thing. And I just went back and I said, look, guys, the dirty jobs might be done. It's okay if it's done because I'd rather, I'd rather move on to what's next than fundamentally change the ethos of it. And fundamentally, this is a show about people you've never met doing things you didn't know people did in towns you can't find on a map. That's right. And if we try and make it something else, then it's going to be that cat in Pet Cemetery that comes back from the dead. And that 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 was not a good pet. <laughs> yeah. And then and then you uh, you ultimately um, took up your old title. Somebody's got to do it, right? And yeah. and went over to CNN. And what was what was that experience like? That was that was very strange. I have to admit, Jeff Zucker did right by me. He made me a very fair deal. In fact, he let me own it. Wow. He let me keep Almost the show. unheard of in this day and age. Completely unheard of. Yeah. But, you know, he needed a companion for Bourdain. And so the thought was, well, we'll go back to the original title. You can't really own a format like Dirty Jobs. So, you know, there, there was some posturing. But in the end, we all knew it was going to work out okay. Right. So I did uh, 32 hours, and what I learned was <laughs> CNN, although opinions vary, is first and foremost a news network. And so when news broke, you know, get out of the way. Right. And so the first season of Somebody's Got to Do It, 60% of the premieres were preempted by all the trouble in the world, Cuba, right, riots, yeah. fires. Yep. And also, you know, a lot of people felt like they didn't like what Jeff was doing. And they thought, look, I, I want my news pure. And to be fair, 10 years earlier, a lot of diehard discoveryites were like, wait a second, get out of the sewer. We want to see planet Earth, period. Right. right? right. And so there was some headwinds, as there always are. But for me, you know, they left me alone. And we continued the basic mission that Dirty Jobs was. It could never be a priority at a news network. Like That's it was right. at Discovery. It could never be their big rock. Right, right, right. And I'll tell you, you'll, you'll love this. To his credit, again, Jeff called me right after we wrapped season four. It hadn't aired yet. Right. And it was a very, very solid season. And he said, Mike, I know you're frustrated with me. And if you think you're frustrated now, you're going to hate me because I'm going into the Donald Trump business. Yeah. We are going to be all Trump all of the time. And your show is going to bounce around like a ping pong ball. And I said, well, that's a drag. And he said, so I'd like to give it back to you. No strings attached. Wow. He gave me season four of that show. I took 32 hours, cut them down into half hours and sold them to TBN. That's right. I saw that, right? So for the first time in the history of the world, a cable show that was technically a hit on CNN became the number one show on TBN. Crazy. Un, I mean, only in cable kind of story like that. Like I, I said, you know, very few people get to walk away with their show owning it 100% like you did. That's amazing. That really yeah. is amazing. And now you're back at Discovery where the show yep. has been renewed and I don't want to say rebooted because it's still Dirty Jobs, but it's Dirty Jobs 2022. It's back. I mean, we did six episodes last year. Actually, we did four episodes during lockdown 
called Road Trip, R-O-W-E-D, because I'm terribly clever. And they were just look backs, you know? And then we did six new ones, and now we've got eight more that premiere on December 11th. But, I mean, honestly, I swore I'd never do it again. But then again, I didn't know the country would locked down for two years. Right. And I didn't realize that essential work would become headline news. And I didn't realize that I would start getting hundreds of notes a day on social from people saying, dude, what are you waiting for? Everyone is talking about the very thing that launched Dirty Jobs. Bring it back. So I'm back at it. I'm older than I've ever been. I'm back in the sewer. I'm delighted. And you got like a, as opposed to this, you have like a real podcast, right? <laughs> well, I prefer to call it a ravenous, insatiable barking dog in my backyard <laughs> that just chews up new guests every single week. Yeah, the way I heard it is six years old. They've turned that into a TV show called The Story Behind the Story over on TBN, as well as a book. So you're a goddamn content machine. Dude, I don't, I don't even know what to, this will sound so self-aggrandizing, but whatever, I'm going to tell you. How America Works is Dirty Jobs Without a Host, number one show on Fox Business. Dirty Jobs is Dirty Jobs. It's back. Story Behind the Story on TBN is back. All in premieres, all happening right now. Somebody's wow. got to do it, never went away. Microworks is in its 15th year. We're exploding. And there's a new line of whiskey named after my pop, Carl Noble, that's now out of control. Whiskey? Yeah, I'm making whiskey in Tennessee. And look, I mean, this all goes back to that crazy phone call from my mother about my pop. <laughs> that phone call drives me into the sewer. It gets me to launch a foundation also in his honor. And now his last name, Noble, K-N-O-B-E-L, died with him. There are no nobles left. He only had girls. So I put it on a bottle of whiskey and now that's wow. for sale. And we're raising money for the foundation doing that as well. So good for you. Before I let you go, Mike, you had intimated that we had crossed paths. And the only thing I could think of off the top of my head was you were the voice of the Ultimate Fighter, right? I was. on Spy I was running Spike at that time. Yeah. But you had mentioned that maybe it was at Comedy Central as well. Was that Dirty Jobs pitch? Doug, you hired me. I did? For what? Okay, this is going to freak you out. I'm just going to tell you. <laughs> you. You didn't know it. Madeline Smithberg hired me on, the Daily on a Show? Friday to host The Daily Show. Come on. After the most exhaustive audition process I'd ever seen any network go through, I made it to second, third rounds. I went into a studio. I filmed an episode. Madeline called me on a Friday and said, look, you're it. I want you to come in. I want you to meet the writers. I came in the following Monday into a room. There were no writers. There was just Madeline. And I said, what happened? And she said, Mike, over the weekend, ESPN relented and Craig Kilborn was let out of his deal and Doug Herzog has always wanted Craig and that's the way it went. This is a great coda, Mike. We haven't haven't aired it yet, but an upcoming episode with Madeline and Liz Winstead. Oh my God. To talk about the origin of The Daily Show. Tell them hello. That's, you know, I think, you know, it's so funny. I have to go back and listen. I think she mentioned you. Oh. And when she mentioned you, for some reason, you know, there was a comedy writer in New York at that time named Mike Rowe. Yeah, he worked for Futurama. Yeah, yeah. And for some reason, I think, I'll have to go back and listen. That's crazy. You know, Bill Weir auditioned for the show. Oh, yeah. David Allen Greer auditioned for the show back then. Doug, but it I, gets I, weirder. Oh, how's that? A year later, as you might recall, CBS makes an offer. Craig says, yeah, see you, wouldn't want to be you. Off he goes. 
Madeline calls me back. She says, will you come in again? I said, sure. I go in. We literally lay down another show. Uh, Paul Padalino, who you probably know. Uh, He's been on my podcast. He was there for all this. She calls me back and she says, that was, again, the best audition we've seen. This thing is so close to in the bag. And then I swear, you can ask her about this. She says, the only way this goes off the rails. John Stewart. It's John Stewart decides he's going to do it. She says, <laughs> if this, her words, if this cheap ass network comes up with a big pile of money for a Norm McDonald or, right? And she goes down the list and John's on the list. And she says, but that's, but that's never going to happen. <laughs> well, you, you are a very, very gracious man to come and sit and talk to somebody who didn't hire you twice. It was the man. best thing you never did for me. Are you kidding me? <laughs> that drove me to Dick Clark and that ultimately drove me to audition back to Discovery and Way Leads on the Way. And now I've got a foundation and four shows I don't know what to do with. Well, you know, my mother said, Mike, I will now quote my mother. My mom always said, everything happens for a reason. Yeah. Yeah. And sometimes the reason is rank injustice and unfairness. (laughs) (laughs) That leads to enormous success. That leads to enormous success. Correct. I got one final question for you. And I want to preface it by saying a previous guest, Brian Cranston, Mm. his answer to this question was dirty jobs. And the question is, aside from dirty jobs and all your other cable shows, what is your all time favorite basic cable show? Well, I'm going to answer you honestly, but you're not going to believe me because the symmetry is almost too much, but it's breaking bad. Oh. <laughs> and, and I met Brian Cranston one time, and I promise I'll keep this short because I was on the red carpet. Dirty Jobs had been nominated for a bunch of stuff and so a deadliest catch. And I'm standing there like a douchebag being interviewed by the usual suspects. And, you know, I've got a handler and people are running up and they're taking pictures. And it's all very flattering, but it's not my element. Well, somebody gets past security, a big guy in a black cowboy hat. And he walks up to me and he taps me on the shoulder. And I turn around and he says, hey, I just want you to know that it's not just me. It's my wife and my kids. We think you're doing one of the most important shows on TV. And this was a very nice thing to say from a fan. And I'm... It's awkward because they're cameras. And I said, sir, thank you. Can I chat with you later? I'm just doing an interview right now. He says, of course. And he walks away. And I don't see him again until I go inside the theater and sit down and see a big guy in a black cowboy hat go up to accept the Best Actor Award for Breaking Bad. It was freaking Brian Cranston. And I treated him like a groupie. I didn't (laughs) recognize him. I didn't recognize Walter White in this ridiculous black hat. So I brushed him off. One of the most terrific actors of all time who made Vince Gilligan's vision reality. It's because the red carpet makes you stupid. He's a great guy. I'm sure he didn't even think about it. And he's a fan. So Give him my regards when you see him. I, 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 I couldn't be a bigger fan. Absolutely. Mike Rowe, so happy to have you here. You're a fantastic guest. It's no wonder you're successful at everything you do. You bring your A-game to everything. And I'm sorry about The Daily Show, but I think it all worked out. And uh, we appreciate you being here. As your mother says, it all happens for a reason, Douglas. There you go. All right. Thanks, Mike. See you. Okay. The very entertaining Mike Rowe. What do you think, Christian? Well, I think what you said at the top, what a voice. It just boomed as soon as he got on. You're like, oh, that's what a professional, real voiceover talent sounds like. I mean, I almost expected 
in a world. Yeah, no, he's he's got one of those voices. From the moment it was coming through my headphones, it was super, super intimidating. <laughs> it is so intimidating. I'm just a rank amateur here who people sometimes say, hey, Doug, you got a good voice. It really sounds good on the podcast. I, same thing. I hear the same thing. We are nothing compared to that. No, he's, he's the real deal. Well, and, and then seven years in the Baltimore Opera. Uh, okay, obviously that's where it comes from. But that's just crazy. Yeah, yeah. Who I died. Who would have thought the man who spends his time in sewers started off in opera? Yeah, and you know the interesting thing about him is he clearly was trying to get somewhere and do something, and he wasn't afraid to kind of do anything to get there. I mean, he sort of had a bunch of dirty jobs, not dirty, yeah, but like yeah. odd jobs, right? Like mm-hmm, he sang mm-hmm. in the opera, he was on QVC, you know, oh, he that did was a little, great. Yeah. He, yeah, he did a little bit of this, he did a little bit of that until he finally landed on the idea, you know, that took him to the promised land. Yeah, and you know, it's a very worthy cause to dive into the people that do those dirty jobs. Somebody has to, and we make light of it. But without all of that, society doesn't function very well. I mean, talk about frontline workers who've been doing this for, you know, decades. It's it's good to pay attention to that. Yeah, it's really fascinating stuff. And, you know, people are always amazed and then get informed about what they see. And, you know, it's a little bit like watching the sausage get made or, you know, going behind the scenes <laughs> and just and thinking about things you never thought of before. And I think just in terms of dirty jobs itself, as he was telling the story, and you hear this, I think, in the interview, it really changed the course of reality television to a certain degree and certainly the Discovery Network, which was much more serious and stayed before his show came along. Like, he is the voice of one of my favorite documentary series, How the Universe Works, which he narrated back in 2010. But that's sort of what you're talking about, the old-school discovery, deep science. You know, I think also he got to start with Dr. Zahi Hawat from the Cairo Museum and, uh, you know, like the most famous Egyptologist in the world. And so, yeah, Discovery Channel did a lot of that. But now... Because of the success of Dirty Jobs, they do a lot of things like that uh, these days. It's still informative, which I think was always the mission and part Mm -hmm, of the brand, mm -hmm, but it's fun and even sometimes funny. The takeaway from me was, A, number one, the cross between him and Brian Cranston, both their favorite shows are their shows. Right. That I thought was a little crazy. And then, of course, he was the voice of Ultimate Fighter with Dana White, which, you know, Dana said was like critical to the success of that game. Well, all that. And then maybe more embarrassing for me, the fact that he was (laughs) a front runner two different times to host The Daily Show. That's all on you, man. (laughs) I honestly can't recall. I'm so embarrassed about that, but I'm so grateful he was here with us today. I hope you enjoyed it. And I hope you will join us next time on BASIC. Basic is a Pantheon Media production in partnership with Sirius XM. Hosted by Jen Cheney and Doug Herzog. Produced by Christian Swain and Peter Ferrioli. Lindley Ehrlich is our assistant producer. Mixed, mastered, and music by Jerry Danielson. Edited by Zach Spisner. You can find Basic on Apple Podcasts, the Sirius XM app, Pandora, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. If you like the show, please rate, review, and share so other people can find us. Don't forget to follow the show so you never miss an episode. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. 
FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. 